Blog Talk Radio. State of Arizona versus Jody Ann Arias, verdict count one. We, the jury, duly impaneled and sworn in the above entitled action upon our oaths do find the defendant as to count one, first degree murder, guilty. I've been in the right place, but it must have been the wrong time. I done said the right thing, but it must have used the wrong line. I've been on the right trail, but it must have Good the evening. Wrong this is Clear and Convincing with Michael Carnahan and Lisa O'Brien where we explore the most infamous cases in our country's history based not on the court of public opinion, but from the perspective of the courts. This time the court will read the verdict. On count one, the verdict reads as follows. We, the jury, find the defendant, Stephen A., Avery, guilty of first-degree intentional homicide as charged in the first count of the information. Good evening, and thank you for joining us for Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas. And this is episode 27, State of New Jersey versus Melanie Lynn Slate McGuire. On April 28, 2004, William T. McGuire, known known as Bill to his friends, and his wife Melanie attended a closing on their first home purchased as a married couple. Later that night, Bill missed a call from the seller that was never returned. His usual electronic activity also ceased with a single email sent to a wrong email address. Beginning on May 5, 2004, three matching Kenneth Cole suitcases were found in the Chesapeake Bay area off the Virginia coast. Parts of a man's dismembered body were found in each suitcase. Also found were garbage bags and a medical blanket. We'll talk about the evidence implicating Melanie in her husband's murder, her 2005 arrest, and her 2007 trial. Then we'll talk about her conviction, direct appeal, and state and federal post-conviction claims. Finally, we'll discuss the recent serialized podcast that was launched to reinvestigate Bill's murder with the intent of exonerating Melanie. We are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our number is 347 989-1171. And good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa. And guess what? I'm a genius because as soon as the music started, I found the name of that person (laughs) we were talking about. His name is Frederick E. Bear. I sent it to you on on Messenger over on Facebook. Okay. Can you spell the last name for me? B-A-E-R. All right, because uh, I I had to close uh, Facebook and Messenger because they weren't working. Oh, you're fine. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you before we get too deep into this case, I wanted to ask you about the last name of these two individuals involved in this case. Just because 
I did my time up in New Jersey when I was in the Air Force, and I was at McGuire Air Force Base, spelled the same way. So I'm wondering if, mm-hmm. uh, because he he's a Navy veteran too. I'm wondering if he's related to uh, Thomas McGuire, who the base was named after. I I don't know that he was. He was his family, I believe, was from New York originally. Mm-hmm. And um, he was born in the Bronx, and I think raised in the New York, New Jersey area. There's not a lot of information about Bill absent what his murderer wants people to know. Mm-hmm. And so um, tonight's a little different. I'm not even going to try and tell you about who she is or who she was. Right. Because I I listened to part of that direct appeal podcast and got so angry that all she's doing is talking about what a horrible person he was. I mean, that he was a liar, that he was a cheat, that he was a gambler, that he was a scam artist. Even though, you know what, bitch, you were as interested in the scams as he was. You now, had two driver's fair, licenses, one from New Jersey fair, and one from Pennsylvania. To be fair, if I've learned anything about females and murder cases, especially involving spouses since we started this, a common defense is, oh, he beat me. Oh, he was a terrible person. That's why I killed him type of situation. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, maybe that's the the situation she's trying to outline. Well, what she does – no, well, what she does is she's just trying to get – make people think that Bill's the type of person – that would be murdered by faceless Sopranos type gangsters. Oh, okay. Because so he either pissed them off or it. borrowed too much money or didn't pay money back or whatever. And we'll get into some of that later. But um, the thing that made me so angry is at one point she's talking about a time when Bill was trying to get out of a traffic ticket because it would have put so many points on his license that he was going to actually end up with basically a a felony conviction. Mm-hmm. He was trying to get out of it by having Melanie say she was driving. Mm-hmm. Now, the moral person's response to that type of request, even from the man you love, is, hell no, we're going to get caught. I'm not doing it. Right. You want to go find somebody and bring her in there and get her to try it? Go right ahead. But I'm not going to be involved, and you better not hope anybody asks me about it because I'm going to rat your ass out. But Melanie's like, sure, yeah, I'll go in and I'll testify that it was me driving. Sure, of course. Of course I'll do that. No problem. She's as willing to lie, cheat, and steal as he is. Right. She just doesn't want people to see that about her. So it's always under his influence or, or, you know, it's always something that was his influence that she didn't really want to do it, but, you know, she did it because, and it's just, it's just ridiculous. Like I said, she's got a New Jersey license and a Pennsylvania license, a driver's license. That means she had a lie in New Jersey and lie in Pennsylvania. Because one of the questions they ask is, do you have a license from any other state? And if you tell them the truth, they take the license from the other state from you before they will issue you a driver's license in that state. 
They did right. it when I moved to Arkansas, and I had they took my Louisiana license from me. When mm-hmm. I moved back to Louisiana, they took they my took Arkansas your... license from me. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and not only did she have a Pennsylvania license, but she apparently kept it current. I mean, and also to be fair, in Arkansas, if you go to renew your license, you have to give up your previous license. Correct. Because they always ask you whether you have a license from any other state. And in order to keep both licenses current and active, you have to lie to both states. Right. Which is called perjury. Yeah, absolutely. So so tonight, like I said, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to talk a little bit about Bill. Um, and then we are going to uh, just get into the crime and we're not going to try to talk about who Melanie is except where it is relevant to actions or circumstances of the murder case. So, And, and first, before we do that, I want to talk about the 2020 episode. Um, okay. I was not happy with it. I felt that they left a lot of information out. Uh, I felt that they misrepresented. One big thing that they misrepresented was Reed's representation leading up to his criminal trial. Mm-hmm. And what they basically did was they had Jimmy Brown, and then they said in January of 1998, um, Garvey and Lydia Clay Jackson were appointed. Using my voice, using a statement I made, but they cut out the statement prior to that in which I talked about Garvey and Howard Jenkins being appointed in October of 1997. Uh-huh. And I talked about Howard Jenkins having to conflict out of the case because Reed was accused of a rape in which a former client of Jenkins, James Slaughter, had been a suspect. Huh. They cut that out. The bright spot is that Reed's advocates are not happy with it either. So whereas I had good feelings about 2020, I, I no longer have those. Um, they are obviously, if they want to push an agenda, they're going to push an agenda. And um, it's just that I guess they, they just want to believe Pam Smart is guilty. But they want to make it seem like there's a question as to the guilt of Rodney Reed. And maybe that's because in this time of COVID, maybe Innocence Project bankrolled this episode. Maybe. Because they certainly got a prominent part toward the end of the episode. True. Um, And if the producer thinks that I'm going to give her the time of day from this point forward. She can kiss my butt because I will (laughs) not have anything to do with her. I will not work on, I will not spend my time. I was there from 11 o'clock in the morning until after nine o'clock at night. Damn. So roughly about 10 hours. Yeah. Uh, We took maybe 45 minutes 
maybe an hour for lunch. And I think we took a little dinner break around four thirty, five o'clock. And this is just a few weeks after I had a heart attack in the end of May. Right, exactly. Um, it was an extremely long day. Um, and it just wasn't, it really, truly wasn't worth my time. Yeah, true. Because the the volume of information that I'd hoped, because Reed's story has been out there since last July when his date was set. Right. And Dr. Phil did an episode and Dr. Oz did an episode and, you know, their side has gotten plenty, plenty, plenty of coverage. Right. I thought it was only fair that the coverage focus on Stacy and focus on dispelling doubt about his mm-hmm. conviction. Uh, another thing the producer wants me to believe is apparently the ABC legal folks didn't want Rodney Reed to sue him. So they had to be fair and give Rodney Reed's side. Right. I'm like, you really want me to believe that a condemned prisoner can sue ABC for defamation, they say he's guilty. Right. Beyond a reasonable doubt. Really. Because, you know, my firm will happily represent you in that case because he's convicted. All of his appeals have been rejected. No court has exonerated him. Mm-hmm. And I would love to see, because you know what? A civil claim by Rodney Reed or Rodney Reed's family members would work out as well for them as Terry Hobbs's claim worked for him. Because it would open up the door for a defense attorney to tear them a new, new asses all around. Right. And to put even more um, even more incriminating information out into the public. True, true. True, true. And, you know, if, if they don't want it, they would have to answer questions. They would answer, have to answer discovery. They would have to do a deposition. And, you know, like I would love to have my friend Michelle dig into. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> she, she is good. She finds the dirt. And, I mean, it sticks. Right. So, but anyway, so that is, uh, like I said, that is the uh, long and short of the 2020 episode. Very, it was very disappointing. Me, uh, the only other good thing besides the fact that Reed's people aren't happy either, is mm-hmm. that um, I had told some people at work about it, and several of them came to me yesterday morning and said, you know, there seems like a lot of stuff missing. They weren't telling the whole story, were they? True. So, and it's gotten, you know, like we saw on Facebook with that 
with the post uh, from Christine. Uh, and mm-hmm. uh, it has garnered some, you know, some interest in the podcast. So we'll Woo-hoo. have to see. Yay, where that leads. All right. So that's enough of that. Close that chapter. I'm done. Okay. <laughs> Fool me once. Shame on me. Fool me twice. No, fool me once. Shame on you. Fool me twice. Shame on me. So she ain't fooling me again. All right, so William Theodore McGuire was the youngest child, September 21st, 1964, in the Bronx in New York, New York City. Uh, He's actually one week younger than I am uh, and two years younger than my brother-in-law, whose birthday is also September 21st. Uh, He had older sisters, I believe two I'm not sure about it, about that. Again, there's not a lot of information. It's been a long time since I've read John Glatt's book, which is an excellent book about the case for anybody interested. Um, His parents did divorce when he was very young. Uh, There was a little bit of turmoil in his growing up, and they probably did not have a lot, a lot of money. And so... As happens with a lot of kids who grow up in tough financial circumstances all of their lives, when they become adults, they want more and more and more and more. And sometimes they they go through a phase and then they get over it and then they're fine. And then sometimes it just never leaves. It's a lot like kids who grow up in in abusive homes where they're starved and then they have an obsession with food all their lives. Right. Or kind of a coping mechanism um, type of situation. You know, kid kids who grow up with parents that are too tough and too 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 um confining with them and then they go wild. They run buck wild. We you know, we are products of our upbringing. And Bill was a product of his. Now, he did go into the United States Navy. Um, and he did serve in the Navy for several years, and including being stationed in the Virginia, probably Newport News area in Virginia uh, or Virginia Beach. Uh, when he got out of the Navy... He apparently attended Rutgers University for pharmacology and then left that program and was able to uh, into a computer programming or IT program because he did eventually become a computer programmer, IT specialist. Um, and he may have had some of that experience in the Navy. Uh, again, not a lot of information easily accessible for for Bill. Uh, he had married first a woman by the name of Marcy. It was sometime during that period that his first marriage broke up and he was working in restaurants. And that's when he met a woman by the name of Melanie Slate. She was also uh, a student at Rutgers 
She may have gotten her degree by that time and was pursuing a nursing degree. Frankly, don't really care. Um, They were dating. Then they decided to get married. Melanie had begun working in fertility clinics or fertility medicine. And so she decided to go ahead and get pregnant before they even got married because she was just bound and determined to have a kid. Um, And based on the source that I found for this information, Bill was not really that happy because he kind of wanted to do the traditional marriage, then baby. So when they got married in, I think it was June of 1999, she was already pregnant with their son, Jack. who was born in February of 2000. So he was going to do um, the son, or the father-in-law thing. Or not father-in-law, stepfather pardon? thing. He was going to do the stepfather. No, 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 no. Uh, Jack, Jack was Bill's child. It's just that Bill wanted to have the wedding and get married. Oh, and then okay, after right. they were married, start having kids. Okay, I got you now. And Melanie took it on herself to go off the pill and go ahead and get pregnant because even though she worked in fertility medicine, bitch had no problem getting pregnant. Bold strategy. Bold strategy. She had no no fertility issues. Right. Uh, and frankly, you know, she's lucky that Bill didn't get really pissed off and say, that's it, we're done, and leave her on her own. Um, She was also abandoned by her birth father, so I think that she's got probably some issues of her own that she just doesn't want to recognize. Um, She was close to her stepfather, but he still wasn't her real daddy. (laughs) So I think she's got issues, too. Um, And at some point... Uh, Bill began working with an IT company, uh, forming an IT company with a business partner, and the business partner was very happy with him. They were very successful. He also was an adjunct professor at a technological school in New Jersey. Uh, In 2002, their second child, Jason, was born. And it was at the end of that pregnancy that Melanie began an affair with a doctor in the fertility clinic where she worked, who was named Dr. Bradley Miller. Whether Bill knew about the affair or not is a mystery. Um, I don't, I don't, never found any indication that he ever told any of his friends about it. Um, Bill actually wanted to leave New Jersey and move to Virginia. He had friends that lived in Chesapeake. Uh, the the housing market there was better than New Jersey. You could get a hell of a lot more bang for your buck in Virginia. And he had spent time in there during the service, so you know he liked it there. But Melanie absolutely, positively would not leave New Jersey. So... Once again, we see a situation where what Melody wanted, Melanie wanted, 
took precedence over what Bill wanted. There was no compromise. There was no discussion. There was just Melanie saying no, and that was the end of it. And so in 2004, Bill and Melanie found a house out in Warren County, New Jersey, which is a kind of rural area. It's a big, nice house, posted a picture of it on the page. And it was a very nice house. There was apparently some acreage with it. And uh, on they went to the closing on April 28, 2004. Little did Bill know that on April 26, 2004, Melanie drove to Pennsylvania and purchased a 38 caliber Taurus revolver in Pennsylvania using her Pennsylvania driver's license with her aunt's address on it. Because the Pennsylvania and New Jersey is one of the most restrictive gun law states as are New York and Connecticut. And in Pennsylvania, they're less restrictive. There aren't any waiting periods. You can, you know, pretty easily obtain weapons. Um, And Southerners, they can't really relate to any state having strict gun laws. Um, But that's just the way it goes. On April 28th, prior to going to the closing, Melanie had forged Brad Miller's signature on a prescription for chloral hydrate and made the prescription out to a former patient of Miller's. The prescription was filled at a Walgreens near the preschool that Melanie took her children to. And in fact, based on Walgreens records, the prescription was filled shortly after Melanie dropped her children off. I think it was something roughly 12 minutes after Melanie dropped the kids off. So we have Melanie on the morning of April 28th obtaining chloral hydrate. Now, while she told Brad Miller she didn't want to buy this house, she didn't want to do this, um, that she wanted to leave Bill, that, that they would each leave their spouses and they would get married and have, you know, family of their own and kids of their own and blend their families together. Um, There wasn't apparently any steps to do it, and and certainly buying a house with your spouse that you're cheating on is not a way to end up with a divorce. Um, But also... Yeah, you're trying to send a big signal there. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, and, and the thing that angers me is that she could have said, this is not a happy marriage. I'm not happy. Let's split up and you go buy your house in Virginia and I'll stay here with the kids in New Jersey and, you know, we'll figure something out. But no, she couldn't do that. And I think buying the house was lulling him into a false sense of security. Because it was what he wanted. And later that evening, after they'd gone to the closing, um, Bill takes a couple of phone calls, a couple of friends called and congratulated him. Um, But in the evening on the 28th, 
he missed a call from the seller uh, who he had spoken to and called back promptly every time the seller had called it, just as if he called the seller about something, the seller returned his calls. On the 29th, um, there was an email from Bill that was sent to a an incorrectly entered email address, which later we'll find was not something Bill would was known to do. Um, Melanie either took the children to a motel or she took them to her parents' house, and she took off from work. On the 30th, Bill's car was parked at a motel in Atlantic City. And when police eventually obtained the video from that motel, uh, you see a Nissan Pathfinder, similar to Melanie's, pull into the parking lot after Bill's car pulls in and is parked. Now, for those of you not familiar with the Eastern Seaboard, the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and Tunnel is a long uh, a long affair <laughs> that goes basically uh you get to Annapolis, Maryland, I believe. Right. It's the Chesapeake it's Bay is pretty the, huge. The turnpike and shit, right? Yeah. Uh there's a bridge and then there are tunnels under the shipping channel. Um, now, I, I think you get to Annapolis, Maryland. I think, like, uh, Annapolis is the beginning. And, um, or or the Annapolis is an end. Or, or be, See, I when I spent summers in Delaware, when we drove home from Delaware, we always came along the eastern seaboard, and we always crossed the Chesapeake Bay Bridge and through the tunnels. Let's put it um, this way. So, the whole Northeast is connected. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's crazy um, how connected it is. Right. And um, I think, yeah, I, like I said, I, I can't remember where it begins and where it ends, uh, but it's a lot. And, um, and it's very long. I think it's probably just not quite as long as the Lake Pontchartrain Causeway. But it's really cool because you go over a bridge and then you go down through the tunnel and then you come back up and there's a bridge, if I recall correctly. So, um, and, um, but it passes through Delaware, Maryland, and Virginia, kind of the Delmarva Peninsula. On April 4th, 2004, Melanie claims to have gone to Delaware to shop for furniture. Authorities believe that that is when she dumped the three Kenneth Cole suitcases containing the dismembered parts of Bill McGuire's body in the Chesapeake Bay. And the reason for that is because the next day is when the first suitcase was found by a fisherman near Virginia Beach. Um, they, they brought the suitcase in. A kid on the boat, bless his little heart, thought he had found treasure. 
and they opened the suitcase. They saw garbage bags, and the adults were like, okay, wait a minute, and the kid was so excited, he apparently broke open the garbage bags, and they see two lower legs belonging to a male. So they contact the um, Marine Patrol, and the Marine Patrol comes out and picks up, and then the Virginia Beach police begin investigating. But, again, they've got legs. Um, They look relatively fresh, but they've been in the water, so there's not a lot of evidence with them. Um, You know, not a lot of trace evidence. Uh, Without a reference sample from the person to whom the legs belong, unless that person's DNA profile is in CODIS, DNA is not going to tell them anything. Right. Uh, On May 8, 2004, Bill's car was towed to an impound yard from the motel in Atlantic City. Um, On the 11th of May, a torso and head are found in a second Kenneth Cole suitcase that washed up on Fisherman's Island. Well, shit. Uh, In the suitcase. Huh? I said, well, shit. Yeah. No wonder why she's trying to make Uh, it look like a mob hit. In the suitcase, uh, along with the head, wrapped around the head was a blanket with uh, medical service marking. Uh, basically, that it came from a, a hospital service co-op. And as it turns out, that particular co-op, one of the clients of that co-op is the fertility clinic that Melanie worked for. So basically stolen a blanket from work. Leading me to believe that if Bill was a scammer, so was Melanie. You know. That's more thought. Well, we're going to talk about that a little bit later. Uh, And then they also find, I believe, in uh, one of the bullet wounds, either in the torso or in the head, they find fibers from furniture furniture or a pillow. And then on the 16th, a, uh, a portion of the lower torso is found in a third Kenneth Cole suitcase by a boater in the Chesapeake Bay. Again, that's turned in. Um, police decide to release a composite sketch, which is done around May 21st. And it's at that time that um, Bill and Susan, um, not Bill, I can't remember the husband's first name, Susan Rice is the wife. Um, They were friends of Bill's. Uh, He was in the Navy with Bill. And they live in Chesapeake, Virginia. They see the composite on TV, and the wife says it looks like, so they contact police. They go in. They look at pictures of the of the remains that have been found. Um, They say, yep, that looks like Bill. And then Bill's identity, they get his fingerprints. They get fingerprints from the the body, and they compare the fingerprints, and they confirm with 
fingerprints. I'm surprised they didn't also confirm with DNA, but they probably didn't have any reference DNA. They could have done familiar with his sister, familial DNA with his sisters, but they couldn't really have done, they didn't have any direct reference samples of DNA from Bill. Um, they could have got done Y DNA with his sons, but who knows if his sons are his because Melanie. Um, anyway, at some point during this time or shortly after this, um, after she's notified, Melanie and her stepfather try to get tolls removed from her easy pass. Because in New Jersey, New York, Connecticut, there are a lot of toll roads. So you have the easy pass to pay tolls on the various roads. And um, apparently one of the trips to Atlantic City, they removed the transponder from the window, but they didn't leave it out of the car. And so the transponder hit, and they were... They paid cash for a toll, but they also it was on the Easy Pass because the Easy Pass documents where you where you've been and what you've been doing and when you were there. Um, they were not successful <laughs> because when there's a transponder hit, there's a transponder hit, and Easy Pass doesn't remove them. So after Bill was identified, the the Virginia authorities come up to New Jersey to notify her. And um, she's eventually interviewed in her divorce attorney's office with a criminal attorney present. Now, I know there are people out there who believe that police wrongly targeted Melanie in the absence of any evidence that she was involved in Bill's disappearance and or death. However, when... When someone you are married to disappears from the face of the earth and then washes up in pieces, even though it's hundreds of miles away, you are going to be the natural first suspect. And it's funny, in cases like this, people say they had no reason to suspect Melanie. How dare they? But in cases like Stacy Stites, they should have looked harder at Jimmy Finnell. In cases like the West Memphis Three, they should have looked harder at the parents of the victims. Um, so it's, it seems kind of situational. If you think the person's innocent, then police had no freaking business uh, even investigating them at all. And that yeah. is... You know, that is some of the vibe that Melanie uh, is is getting. So Melanie and her uh, detectives, who also noticed that sometimes her facial expression seemed like she was, wanted them to think that she was crying, but they never saw any tears. Right. Um, so Melanie goes into this long spiel. And this is the same spiel that she's been telling for, you know, 15 years or 16 years now. 
that she and Bill, in the middle of the night, got into a fight on April 28th, early early April 29th, in the apartment. Um, They had just closed on the house. They were going to be moving out of the apartment that weekend. But they get into this huge fight that, of course, Bill started it. And it's not clear whether he actually woke her up or whether they were both up maybe packing. But they get into a fight, and Bill apparently goes ballistic because Melanie used dryer sheets in the laundry. And Bill just hates dryer sheets. So she claims that in addition to hitting her, in the face, but not with a fist, with an open hand, because God knows he would have broke her face if he'd hit her with a fist. Um, He also picked up the dryer sheet and stuffed it in her mouth. She claims her two-year-old son also woke up during this kerfuffle, and so she grabbed this two-year-old son and runs and locks herself in the bathroom with the two-year-old. Now, what I want to know is, Daddy's on a rampage. Daddy's pissed. You go lock yourself in the bathroom with your two-year-old. What about your four-year-old? Because there's apparently no effort to protect the four-year-old child from Daddy on a rampage. So this is where I kind of doubt Melanie's story. Because... It, it, you know, if I were a mom, it'd be like my, my two-year-old woke up and hears all this. I'm going to go run. I'm going to go get my four-year-old. And then I'm going to lock us all into the master bedroom or a bathroom or the kids' room while daddy has his little hissy fit. Right? Um, but she doesn't do that. And then she claims that she stays in the bathroom until she hears Bill packing his things and storming out of the apartment. Um, But again, it's kind of, it's kind of odd because one of the things that he could have very well have taken with him was that four-year-old. Right. So um, the next day she goes and takes out a restraining order and she tells the court she's got no idea where he is. Um, Then she also tells police, the story she's telling the police is that Bill's been erratic for months. He's drinking. She thinks he's using drugs. He's a gambler and he owes a lot of shady people a lot of money and um, that uh, he's a scammer, that he pisses people off, that there's like a long list of people that hate his guts, that he has no friends, that he has no redeeming qualities as a human being, and, you know, there there are going to be people that are going to show up to his funeral just to make sure he's really dead, Um, which is not really what, like, the Rice's experience with Bill tells me. Because these are people who had been worried about him since 28, and when they see a composite that looks like him, they immediately contact police and say, that looks like our friend Bill. 
and mm-hmm. then give police information to find out if that is Bill. Um, his business partner said he was a great guy, best friend you right. could ask for. Uh, they had a successful business, and that while the partner knew he gambled, the partner didn't think it would ever it had ever caused a problem with Bill, their business, or their relationship. Uh, the testimony from the people in Atlantic City was that Bill was a popular client. He was heavily comped because he spent money, but he also made money. You know, like he he bought 90000 worth of chips in the year before his death, but he made a $30,000 profit uh-huh. in gambling at that hotel. Okay. So he wasn't borrowing money from loan sharks. And, you know, I mean, they had just bought a house and put a, a significant cash down payment on it. Right. So, you know, the person, the person Melanie's trying to paint is not, an, it's not an accurate portrait of Bill, which is what pisses me off. Um, one of the things when she took out the restraining order against Bill, she said she didn't know where he was, but just prior to that or just after that, she went to Atlantic City and claimed that she moved his car, that she went looking for him in Atlantic City. So when she said she didn't know where he was, well, that's a lie because she knew he was probably in Atlantic City. Um, and um, so she she claimed to have moved the car, but again, the, the video footage suggests that she was dumping the car. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Um, she also denied owning any matching luggage. We're poor. We don't travel. However, the following day, she contacted investigators and said, oh, by the way, I did remember we had this set of Kenneth Cole luggage. And, yeah, it was green. Uh, yeah, reaction sounds familiar. And then she looked at one of the pictures and said, yeah, that could be one of our, our suitcases. Um, she had storage lockers, and police asked to uh, asked to see those lockers. And one of the things they found in one of the lockers was Bill's wallet. It didn't have his driver's license, and it didn't have, I think, some of his credit cards, but it had the majority of the other things that people keep in their license, uh, keep in their wallet, and use, you know, when they're out and about. Like, if they're out in Atlantic City to gamble, they're going to need the wallet. Uh, And she also gave away Bill's clothing and and all of his belongings, which is weird because she claims she heard him packing. Interesting. Not guilty uh, looking at all. You know, and, you know, there there are a couple of things with her claims that Bill was abusive toward her. First of all, if you're married to somebody who's abusive, you are not, I repeat, not going to go track his car down somewhere 
and move it just to spite him. Because that's going to get you a beat down for sure. And if he leaves, you know, you're not going to pack up all his things in garbage bags and give it to somebody, your cousin. Because if he comes back wanting his things, you damn well better have them or that's going to get you a beat down too. So, um, so the investigation kind of begins once they are able to identify Bill. And one of the things, the most worrying thing is the absence of any electronic activity for Bill after April 28, 2004. This is a guy that had a Blackberry and a cell phone and he was on both all the time. And yet they're silent. The last thing is an email that went to that was, you know, an incorrectly entered address saying he wasn't going to be at work. And that's it. Um, they start checking Melanie's stories. They interview Bill's family members, uh, his friends, his coworkers, his uh, colleagues at the school. And again, they're not finding the person that Melanie's described to them. They also examine the McGuire computers, and that's where they find some interesting searches for uh, poisons, gun laws, buying guns in Pennsylvania, chloral hydrate, undetectable poisons, how to commit murder, et cetera, et cetera. Um, They also have... They find out about Melanie's gun purchase on the 26th in Pennsylvania. They've got the matching luggage that was the matching suitcases that were the McGuire's. They've got the blanket, which was provided to Melanie's fertility clinic. They've got the the chloral hydrate prescription. They know where it was filled. They know when it was filled. And they've got video of a woman going into Walgreens at the time that it was filled to fill it. They also have the garbage bags that the body parts were wrapped in. And the garbage bags, they were able to recover Bill's clothing and the bags that the clothing was put into. And I think they were also able to recover bags from the apartment that they had vacated, which was spick and span spotless to such a degree that there was no DNA from anybody in the McGuire family. And they've lived there for a few years. Okay. Dang. A friend of Melanie's, or maybe a friend of Bill's, described the place as smelling like a morgue. The bleach smell was so strong. But anyway, a forensic analyst with the uh, police agency, because the Virginia authorities, once they determined that the murder occurred more likely than not in New Jersey, they turned everything they had over to the state troopers in New Jersey and the New Jersey state police and the local authorities in, I guess, Middlesex County began investigating it. So um, they, he, you know, this tool mark examiner, he did tool mark examination and found that the bags, that the body parts were wrapped in and the bags from the McGuire apartment or from where that Melanie used to get rid of Bill's shit uh, were probably produced 
on the same production line at around the same time based on tool marks, based on testing. They also had a garbage bag manufacturing expert who worked in the industry who examined the bags and did testing and also found that the bags were more likely produced on the same production line at the same time within, you know, a few hours of each other. Um, Bill's car, when they found the car, there was a bottle of chloral hydrate in it. There was also what a forensic examiner termed human sawdust, and that was basically fibrous connective tissue that is not going to be shed by a living person. It's going to be shed during the dismemberment of a body. Um, police also suspected that Melanie had an accomplice. My money is on her stepfather, and he may or may not just be an uh, accessory after the fact. I don't think that he was necessarily an accessory before the fact, uh, but police were never able to gather any evidence that implicated any specific person. But again, I suspect it was her father-in-law, our stepfather rather. But at one point they, they suspected Brad Miller, who was Melanie's motive for getting rid of her husband. And I would have to say, Melanie, in addition to having the motive of Brad Miller, she also has an end to her marriage and every asset the couple had, that's all Melanie's now. The house in in Warren County, any funds, any money, any retirement accounts or bills. Not only that, but her own retirement accounts and her own money is not going to be tied up in, in a divorce. So um, but they suspected Miller, and Miller agreed to cooperate, and he recorded some calls with Melanie, as did her former nursing school friend, James Finn, who basically had a thing for Melody who never reciprocated. And he had given her some advice, and they'd had some conversations about the whole bill situation. Um, she never made any directly incriminating admissions to either of them. Um, she's very, I guess, uh, what's a good word for it? She's very savvy. She's very intelligent. Okay, so she knows when they ask her, did you do it? She knows to deny, 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 deny. Um, maybe she's a little bit crazy and she's disassociated herself from what she did. But uh, at any, you know, at any rate, um, she did give them stories that turned out not to be true or could be refuted by detectives during the investigation uh, or led to discovery of information that looked really, really bad for Melanie. Um, and... Then they also had false 
statements to the court for the temporary restraining order as well as the divorce because she tells the courts and swears in court that she doesn't know Bill's whereabouts, that he stout on her and disappeared, and yet within days of him, quote, disappearing, she's in Atlantic City, and by her own admission, suddenly, by happenstance, finding his vehicle and moving it from one hotel to a motel parking lot. And then taking a cab that they can't, uh, they can't corroborate back to Woodbridge, which is quite a ways. It's, it's a pretty hefty cab ride. Uh, and then having to take another cab back to Atlantic City because she had lost her vehicle when she accidentally, you know, by happenstance found Bill's car. She forgot where she put her car. I mean, don't you just hate when that happens? Um, and, you know, she had several days off from work after Bill supposedly left her. So during the day, she had a lot of time at, in that apartment alone without her children to do whatever she needed to do. Right. Yeah, so... Um, so the the investigation this investigation took 13 months after the first suitcase turned up before Melanie was arrested. Mhm. So I would say that is a very careful investigation and one of the things again Police found no evidence that Bill McGuire was alive after April 28, 2004. They found no evidence of anybody else having any reason or desire to kill Bill McGuire other than Melanie. Um, Like I said, Melanie's stories about him being in deep to loan sharks was never, the police were never able to corroborate it. Huh, okay. Um, I personally think, and I I read this on another message board, uh, I personally think that Melanie was watching too much Sopranos at that time. (laughs) Right. So, and then she was arrested in June. Uh, She pled not guilty. She was arrested for murder pled not guilty, and was released on bail. In October of 2005, she was indicted on first-degree murder, second-degree possession of a firearm for an unlawful purpose, second-degree desecration of human remains, and third-degree perjury for the lies that she told the court in either the restraining order or the divorce. I can't remember which one. Um, Her bail was upped. Uh, That was paid by her parents. I mean, mm-hmm. and it was, I think the bail on the first degree murder was north of $2 million. Damn. Of course, if they, if they have a bail bond, they have to put up $200,000. I, I get the impression that her stepfather, uh, Michael Caparero, is very, very wealthy. 
And so she was free on bond pending trial. In October of 2006, she was indicted on two counts of hindering prosecution, third degree, fourth degree tampering or fabrication of physical evidence because apparently during a grand jury proceeding in 2005, um, physical evidence of some sort was sent to the grand jury uh, anonymously and investigators traced it back to Mel, uh, back to Melanie. And then um, apparently another anonymous package was sent trying to implicate Bill's sister, Cindy. And that too was kind of, Melanie was suspected to be behind that as well. Of course, it could have been her mama. It could have been her stepfather. It could have been any number of her friends, all of whom think Melanie would never do this. And then she was also uh, indicted on four counts of third-degree possession of a controlled substance. Apparently, I think when she was arrested, she had Xanax that had been prescribed to her by Miller. And she maybe didn't have it in the prescription bottle. So then or they should have dropped the charge whenever they found out it was prescribed to her, shouldn't they? Well, it it was eventually that was eventually dropped, but yeah, um, I well I don't know because you know Miller prescribing Xanax when he's not treating he's not treating her. Um, they're they're kind of frowning on that sort of thing. Right. It's it's harder these days for doctors, you know, to just write you prescriptions mm-hmm. for things that used to be very very easy and very common back in the seventies and the eighties and the nineties, but it's not so much anymore. It's very right. Difficult. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I I hurt my back and I contacted the doctor at one of the clinics that we worked with with the plaintiff's firm uh, just to see if he'd call in a prescription for something. And he was like, you're going to have to come to the office. And, you know, I'm going to have to examine you. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. So I I did, and they, you know, gave me a shot and called in uh, muscle relaxers and a, a an analgesic pain reliever, okay. uh, which was fine. And then I had to go be examined to get a pack when I, you know, when I had an infection. Cause right. they, would, they couldn't even call that in for me. So, um, and Melanie also, I think her parents bankrolled her private attorneys because she had private attorneys. She was not at the mercy of public defenders. So, um, and apparently the fee the attorneys wanted was beyond her capabilities. So they negotiated a uh, reduced fee of $180,000. And that was a one 
one-time only deal, and the 180 had to cover the attorney's fees, expert fees, uh, accommodations in New Jersey while the trial went on, you know, subpoenas, court fees, whatever, that had to cover everything, uh, which is 180000 is is pretty significant. Usually, even a great criminal defense attorney usually will ask for about twenty five, ten to twenty five thousand up front, and that's usually meant to cover most of the trial. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they'll they'll you know say twenty five thousand, and you can pay them in increments you know, during certain portions. Um, but this was just prior to trial or, or just after trial started, they negotiated a reduced fee. Uh, but she had private attorneys, one of whom was uh, a guy by the name of Takapina. He was from New York, but he was allowed to pro- practice in New Jersey with a local counsel. He represented Bernard Carrick the former commissioner of the NYPD who had a little trouble after George W. Bush appointed him as Homeland, probably first appointment to Homeland Security chief. One of the first people appointed. Um, and he had a little bit of state and, and federal um criminal issues, which led to some disputes between himself and Takapina, but it's not relevant here. So the trial began on May on March fifth, two thousand seven, and went on from until April twenty third, two thousand seven. The controlled substance counts were dismissed prior to trial. The prosecution case while there was no physical evidence tying Melanie to Bill's body, there was no gun to compare with the bullets recovered from Bill's body. Um, Melanie claimed that the gun, which she claimed to have purchased the gun at Bill's request because he had some kind of felony, I think from his bad driving record, and could not purchase a gun, but that means you can't own a gun either. And it pretty much means that you can't even be around a gun. You know, like if Bill's driving Melanie's truck and Melanie's got a gun in her truck and he gets pulled over and that gun gets found, he's facing state and federal violations as a felon in possession of a firearm. Right, Even if absolutely. he didn't know the gun was in the truck. So I, I kind of find it hard to believe. And and it's illegal if a felon asks you to buy them a gun, that's breaking the law. You're breaking the law if you say, sure, and go buy him a gun. Mm-hmm. In fact, buying purchasing a firearm for anyone who is legally not permitted to own a firearm or possess a firearm would be breaking the law. So 
Um, again, so once again, here we have Melanie. She's talking about Bill wanting to break the law, and she's just as willing to break it. Uh, but physical evidence that they do have, they have the suitcases, which Melanie admitted were theirs. She claims Bill packed them up and left and took them when he left her, but it was determined that those three suitcases would not have fit in his Nissan Maxima. They would have fit in her Pathfinder, but not the Maxima. Uh, They have the blanket, which is from her employer. They have the chloral hydrate, which they know she wrote the prescription for. She used the name of a patient, and she filled the prescription, and they know exactly when she filled it. They have the human sawdust left in in the vehicle. Definitely could not have been shed by a living Bill McGuire. Um, the argument is made that it's just, you know, it's just tissue that we all shed. But again, the medical examiner or someone testified at trial that this was fibrous connective tissue, not epithelial skin cells that you slough off. And then while they didn't have the gun to conclusively link the bullets in the found in Bill's body to the gun that Melanie purchased, the characteristics of the bullets were consistent with the potential characteristics of the gun Melanie purchased. The Taurus is manufactured with interchangeable equipment that can leave either five lands and grooves or six lands and grooves. Because in the barrel size of this particular model, there is no impact on accuracy. So they can use interchangeable methods to manufacture the weapon. Um, Probably means more to someone who knows more about guns than I do, but (laughs) I guess it's important. If the the barrel, if the accuracy of the weapon is based on, on, you know, how the barrel is made, then they have to use specific tools and, and things to to manufacture the barrel, whereas in the in the short nose weapons, the length of the barrel has no impact on accuracy. Right. So they can manufacture the barrel with interchangeable different you know different methods and different means or different mm-hmm. equipment. So. And then they have the circumstances. They have the statements that she made about Bill that just aren't true. Mm -hmm. Um, They have the statements made to the Easy Pass trying to deny that they made the trips that Easy Pass clearly show they made. Um, They have the recordings of the phone calls with Miller and Finn, which led the police to, you know, the information about her moving the car and things. They have the purchase of the weapon which is just coincidentally two days before 
bill disappears off the face of the earth. They had the fact that she took off from work. They have the claim trip to Delaware for furniture shopping, which she told Miller, but which in reality police believe was the trip to Virginia to drop the suitcases off the bridge. And then they have her moving the car, which she admits to doing, and the chloral hydrate, et cetera, found in the car. The defense basically challenged every bit of the physical evidence put on by the by the prosecution. They also pounded on the lack of evidence, the lack of evidence that the murder occurred in the Woodbridge apartment. Mm-hmm. Because there was no blood, there was no tissue, there was no DNA, there was no... Uh, Neighbors saying, oh, yes, I heard a gunshot or, you know, I heard a saw like somebody was sawing. Mm -hmm. Um, They also disputed the ballistics evidence. They disputed the findings regarding the garbage bags, and they had their own expert who said that the state experts findings actually proved the garbage bags were not similar. And then they also had Melanie's character. She is a nurse. She works in a fertility clinic. She is about giving life, not taking life away. Right. Um, she, you know, she is a good daughter. She's a loyal friend. She's a conscientious worker. She took good care of her patients. She cared about her patients. Um, and all of these things are well and good. Meanwhile, you know, for the past 18 months, two years, you've been calling Bill a drug addict, drunk gambler who everybody hated, who couldn't make friends, who pissed people off all the time, who was borrowing money, who was running your family into the ground, who ran his first wife into the ground. Um, She actually wanted to have Bill's first wife come in and testify that when Bill left her, he drained out all their bank accounts and left her high and dry, which has fuck all to do with whether Melanie killed him or not. Touche. But it would explain, it would explain Melanie's behavior because Melanie, another thing Another big, 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 big clue is that when Bill disappeared, Melanie didn't report him missing to anybody. She didn't Hmm. call in a missing persons report, nothing. Now, um, just just to point something out here, one problem that everyone who commits murder has is that they did not contemplate getting caught. They thought they had the perfect way to get rid of the body. They thought they had the perfect way of uh, directing suspicion away from themselves. And it just usually never works out. I'm sure there's a case or two where it did. Um, the first thing I want to say is Melanie thought, I, I believe firmly, that Melanie thought when she dumped those suitcases in the bay off that bridge near Virginia, 
if any of them washed up, nobody would ever be able to identify the person inside. And hmm. absent that identification, they're never going to trace it back to her. Right. And so it was her bad luck. And I think she believed that the the suitcases, there was one had a, one of them had a five pound weight in it. So I guess she thought that one would sink to the bottom. And then I think she believed the other two would go out and end up in the Atlantic Ocean. And if they were ever found, they would be found way far removed from New Jersey, United States of America. And once again, that's not how it worked out. Because they ended up washing up within weeks of her dumping them. Right. So the jury got the case after summations and after instructions, and they deliberated for several days. Um, and finally, on the 23rd of April, came back with guilty on the murder, the weapons charge, the desecration charge, and the perjury charge. They did not find her guilty on the tampering, false report, uh, all those other charges. Um, They did have evidence. um, In fact, Jim Fitzgerald, who we interviewed on the very short brief beyond behind the curtain. Right. Or no, no, no country for conspiracy. Never mind. Uh Uh-huh. Um, Jim Fitzgerald testified at Melody McGuire's trial regarding linguistic uh, characteristics of the anonymous notes. Well, dang. One of which had the phrase Madam Prosecutor or Madam State Attorney General. Uh-huh. And that was something that in a conversation Melanie referred to the chief prosecutor as Madam State Attorney General. Wow. Or Madam Assistant State Attorney. or um, I can't, I don't have the exact phrase in front of me. So they did convict her. She was sentenced on July 19th, 2007. There was briefly, very briefly, a motion for new trial. And unfortunately, I could not, I could find only one article Apparently, a a gentleman contacted the defense and claimed to have been some sort of mafioso or connected to the mafia in some way, shape, or form. And he claimed that he had information regarding Bill McGuire's murder, and it was just as Melanie said. It was because he owed a lot of money to a lot of shady people, and that they shot him and they cut him up and they put him in the suitcases that they found in his car and they dumped him off into the Chesapeake Bay. Well, when the state got this information and got the name of the witness, it turns out that that witness has something of a checkered history and apparently confesses to things and just takes what he could find out in the media 
and weaves a story and is trying to brighten, you know, break up his days because he's apparently serving time for something. Um, <laughs> and break up his days right. and maybe get transported, you know, out of whatever place he's serving time in to mm-hmm. uh, be in court and testify. And so when this information was provided to the defense, they apparently uh, withdrew their motion for new trial. Um, Interesting. This is, I believe, part of her federal habeas, so I will, I will do a little bit more digging on, on it later. Uh, but, yeah, it, it turned out to be a new trial that went wah, 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 wah. <laughs> um, so, but I, I, I have to say, Innocence Project is really bad. They will double down, and they will stamp their feet, claim this person's credible no matter what anybody says, uh-huh. whereas apparently Takapina was like, I'm not, I'm not effing with this guy. No freaking way. Right. So, um, you know, that's, he's, he's got some character. Uh, so the judge sentenced Melanie and, um, she was sentenced to life, which means she will have to serve 85% of her sentence prior to being eligible for parole. And that means mm-hmm. she'll be about 100 or 101 because it's an indeterminate sentence, so 85% is a long-ass time. She got 10 years on the desecration charge, and she's got a five-year parole in an ineligibility period on that charge, on that sentence. She got five years for perjury. And there's a two and a half year parole ineligibility period on that. So, like, she would be theoretically eligible for parole on the desecration and perjury charges now. Got to serve her life. She's got to finish out the term on the life sentence. Um, The unlawful possession of a weapon charge was merged with the murder count and then dismissed. So, the judge cut her a break. Because he probably could have sentenced her to another, you know, 10 years on that charge. Um, I also think the charges are concurrent, not consecutive. So, you know, she's finished her term on the desecration and and the uh, perjury charge. Right. So on her direct appeal, uh, she basically claimed that the court erred in admitting the two-mark expert's opinion uh-huh. uh, regarding the garbage bags, and the uh, the appellate court found that that was not accurate, that two-mark examination is a an accepted scientific uh, endeavor, study, whatever you want to call it. Right. I mean, yeah, it, it, it's acceptable evidence, and it's the the examiner was qualified to offer the opinions he offered. Um, that the tool mark examination is there. There are training programs by federal and state agencies. There are 
Um, there are programs that ensure that tool mark examiners are proficient. Mm-hmm. So they're, you know, they're they're tested to make sure that they're doing their jobs right and and doing things accurately. While there are some quasi criticisms and some uh, private agencies that want to make the better, that doesn't mean that courts can't accept that kind of evidence uh, and and that they don't accept that kind of evidence every day. Right. And then they found that um, Melanie wanted to have one of Bill's friends testify that Bill told him in January of 2004 that he wanted Melanie to buy him a gun because that would corroborate what Melanie was saying mm-hmm. that she bought the gun that at Bill's insistence. Um right. the court excluded it because it was hearsay because there was no corroborating evidence that um made it reliable. Right. Um and also the fact that it it didn't matter whether she bought the gun on her own or whether Bill wanted her to buy it, it doesn't change the fact that she killed him with the gun. Right, she still got it. The reason it was in the house doesn't doesn't really matter. Um, and I think Melanie's one of those people that she's going to fixate on something and she's going to argue it into the ground, even though it doesn't have a, a hell of beans to do with what I'm talking about, and this is probably one of the reasons that her fights with Bill were so allegedly epic. Although I, I get the impression Melanie's a drama queen, and Melanie wants drama, and if you're not enough drama for Melanie, then she's going to cut you loose. Hmm. Um, they all, she also complained about in, improper remarks that the uh, prosecutor made um, regarding the ballistics and I believe regarding apparently there was a witness that they oh it was the witness on the gun the prosecutor basically said she didn't present any testimony uh, about why she bought the gun or or whatever the phrase was and um while they found the the prosecutor kind of crossed the line in addressing argument made by the defense attorney, it still wasn't enough. It was kind of harmless error. It wasn't enough to deprive uh, Melanie of a fair trial. And because right. the evidence wasn't admissible to begin with. Um So she was kind of arguing that the the prosecutor got evidence excluded and then argued that absence of evidence. Um, And then there were allegations that jurors were posting on court TV message boards and blogs. Oh, dear God. And that jurors were following court TV message boards and blogs because the case was cast on court TV. And basically, the record did not show that any jurors were actually posting 
or on the message boards and blogs during the trial. There was no evidence of that. There was a post that was alleged to have been made by a juror, but the court TV could not provide any evidence of that post or the poster. So it was speculation. Okay. Um, and, uh, you know, she's she's claiming her, her jury was tainted, but really the record is pretty well developed in that area, and there's no evidence that her jury was tainted. Right. And so the uh, the state intermediate court of appeal uh, affirmed her conviction and sentence on March 16th, 2011, and certification of the case was denied by the New Jersey Supreme Court on September 20th, 2011. Then Melanie moves into state post-conviction. She filed a post-conviction, a pro se claim, on October 17, 2011. Uh, Counsel was appointed and a brief was filed. Uh, They were trying to get a hearing. Uh, They were alleging some ineffective assistance of counsel and, and most of the claims made during the direct appeal. Um, and some ineffective assistance for failure to hire experts, failure to call fact witnesses, a um, couple of other uh, a couple of other minor things. Um, mm-hmm. The post conviction appeal was denied without a hearing by the state trial court in October on October second, twenty fourteen, and that decision was affirmed by the Intermediate Court of Appeals on August 17, 2017, and certification was again denied by the New Jersey Supreme Court on January 29, 2018. Then Melanie filed a federal habeas claim pro se on March 9, 2018, she requested counsel, which was denied by the court. Um, she has now requested in March of this year a stay of the federal habeas claim, habeas proceeding so that she can find counsel. And that request for a stay is pending the uh, judge in the New Jersey District Court has not ruled on that request for a stay yet. It's kind of unusual that they usually don't stay those proceedings unless you are going back to state court for a hearing Right. develop the record on your federal habeas claim or to exhaust state grounds that you didn't raise and exhaust. Um, but with COVID and everything that's been going on, the judge may just... Let it go. Let it go. Um, there's a pretty fully developed record. I mean, the the state filed every transcript 
every appeal opinion, every trial court opinion is a pretty extensive record. Uh, and she's arguing, like I said, she's arguing a lot of the, you know, failure to call witnesses and ineffective assistance. And I'll go more into detail on that on the update episode at the end of the season. Right. And hopefully it'll be her, uh, her federal habeas will be done by then. Of course, then it'll go to the third Circuit Court of Appeals, and um, after that, it'll probably go to the U.S. Supreme Court because you know she's going to file the U.S. Supreme Court. <laughs> so, right. Um, so then we have the Direct Appeal podcast. Okay. And there was an episode of 2020, which also talked about this podcast. The people who did the podcast are two, quote, criminology professors. Um, one would expect criminology professors to be able to read a court opinion, such as in a direct appeal or a state or federal post-conviction claim, but apparently... They don't do that. Um, these particular professors also study and specialize in, quote, wrongful conviction, unquote. So that's kind of like ghost hunters, you know? They're going to go out there and they're going to find wrongful convictions. Um, they are not going to say, nope, state got it right, 100%. Right. They also had a prior relationship or contact with McGuire in that McGuire has contributed materials to one of their classes or studies or articles or whatever it is that they do. So um, that tells me that they're going into this. They're going to claim objectivity until the cows come home. But in reality, they're looking to find reasons that Melanie McGuire is innocent. Right, absolutely. Whatever it takes. Um they also, and I, this is the reason I did not listen to the entire podcast and will not listen to the entire podcast, because the first episode that I listened to was basically a platform for McGuire to denigrate and trash her victim, Bill. Mm. Also, at one point, one of the professors said something along the lines of we've tried to corroborate these claims that Melanie made and we haven't found anything corroborating them but then they let Melanie continue trashing Bill 
talking about what a liar he was, what a scammer he was, scams that he pulled. Um, she said something about him uh, getting fired from a job because he ran credit cards twice and pocketed the cash. Hmm. And the problem is, is that this gets out, you know, first of all, people give it credence because it's coming from his, quote, wife. And they don't think about the fact that it's coming from the woman who put a bullet in, put three bullets into him, rather, and then cut his body up, put it into suitcases from her home, put those suitcases into a a Nissan Pathfinder, drove down to Virginia, and tossed the suitcases off the side of a fucking bridge. Right. Hoping that they would never be found or if they were, that no one would ever be able to identify Bill. And so you have to, you know, that they would give her any credence. And, of course, they think everything she's saying is 100% true. You know, why would she lie? Because True. she's in prison. Exactly. Because she's been convicted of this crime and she does not want to be guilty. She doesn't want to be seen as guilty. She's worried about what people think of her. I don't give a shit what her reasons are. Right. She wants out of prison. You know, she thinks Bill was horrible and he needed killing. I don't care. She has more reason to lie than anybody else out there. And they're like, well, we didn't reach out to Bill, Bill's family because we want to respect his family. If you're going to reinvestigate the case, you have to talk to both sides. And that's what they're saying they're doing is reinvestigating the case. But, you know, some of the comments in an article that I read give me the impression that they're not really reinvestigating. They're just going to try and repackage Melanie's claims. Uh, One of their comments in the article with the 2020 episode is that McGuire doesn't file of a murderer. Hmm. Um, Hmm. What the criteria for this profile are, they don't elaborate. Um, but I mean, you know, she's been convicted of murder. Her guilt was proven beyond a reasonable doubt to a jury of 12. I would say that pretty much fits the profile. She was a woman having an affair. She wanted to end her marriage. She wanted him to end his marriage. She wanted to be with him. She wanted to have his children. You know, granted, Miller wasn't in any hurry to leave his wife, but that doesn't mean Melanie wasn't in in a hurry to get rid of Bill. Maybe she thought it'd be easier for Miller to leave his wife if Bill was out of the picture. You know, I don't know. But like I said, they don't elaborate on what the criteria of the profile are because she's a nurse. Uh, You know, I can name four or five nurses 
granted, they usually killed their patients. But, you know, she may be the exception to the rule. Um, another thing that they raised the dispute about the uh, ballistics and the gun Melanie purchased. That, you know, some website had that the gun Melanie purchased had five lands of grooves and the bullets came from a gun with six lands of grooves. Um, you know, that has been rejected. That's been presented in appeal. That's been rejected. Yes, one of McGuire's appellate attorneys went to the Taurus website and found the model that Melanie bought. A page on that website said that model had five lands of groups. Unfortunately for Melanie, the state went to the president of the company, and he gave the state an affidavit that said, yeah, some models have five lands and grooves. Some models have six lanes and grooves because, our, uh, you know, the manufacturing process for this particular model is we use these interchangeable pieces and parts. And the website is always changing, and so the information is not necessarily accurate. So, went, 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 there went McGuire's great new evidence that her gun had five lanes and grooves. And again, you know, Melanie. If you hadn't gotten rid of the gun, which I think is in the Chesapeake Bay somewhere, um, if you hadn't gotten rid of that gun, you could have produced it, and then they could have said, if it had five lanes of grooves, then maybe you didn't shoot Bill. But you didn't have that gun. You claim it was supposed to be in a lockbox, and you took the lockbox to the storage unit, and then you opened the lockbox, and the gun was gone, and you have no idea where it is. Well, it's just too bad, so sad, sucks to be you. Because the only way you can prove how many lands of grooves your gun actually had is by producing your gun. And you can't do that. You don't want to say you got rid of it, but I think you got rid of it. Uh, It's not a leap for me to decide that you got rid of it either. Because circumstantially, that's the most logical choice. Um, They also are complaining about the garbage bag testing being insufficient. In other words, the experts did not perform enough tests to say conclusively that the bags came from the same process. Mm -hmm. Well, that's never, no expert is ever going to be able to conclusively say that. Just as no expert is ever going to be able to conclusively say They came from different processes. The only way an expert could conclusively say either way is if they were in the plant while the bags were being manufactured and observed the entire process and either A, observed the box of bags being processed and and manufactured and put into the box and then the box being picked up by Melanie McGuire And then seeing Melanie McGuire put the body parts into the bags and put some of Bill's belongings into other bags and, you know, yet still more bags in the box. You know, that's the only way anybody can conclusively say the bags are the same. Right. Or identical. Um, And and only an expert who observes the entire process can say, nope, the dye were changed. 
the roller was changed. This equipment was changed before bag B was manufactured. So there, again, it's, it's like the fiber evidence in the West Memphis Three case. It was never going to be conclusive. No one could ever have been conclusive. Um, it's, you know, basically consistent with is the best anybody is ever going to be able to do. But they're holding this to a higher standard. So they're saying the state should have had a conclusive opinion when no such opinion is possible. Right. And they imply that one more test, um, or I, I don't think they even identified testing that should have been done. They just say the expert didn't do enough testing. Huh. Uh, then they All also right. talk about some unexplained animal hairs, which in my research, I did not come across a single mention of a single animal hair. Um, so I don't know what context these alleged animal hairs were found in. Were they found in you know, one of the suitcases or on the body part or, you know, were they something found, say, after the suitcases had been transported? Was it found on the suitcase after it was transported by the Marine officer who maybe had a canine on his boat at some point? Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know what the con. They don't mention the context of how, where, or how, or when these animal hairs were supposedly found. They just say there are unexplained animal hairs that, when they couldn't find, they couldn't link Melanie to an animal. They decided they weren't forensically important. But they don't. Again, they don't say where they were found, when they were found, by whom they were found. Because more likely than not, they were found, if they were deemed not forensically significant, it's more likely than not because it was on the outside of the suitcase transported in the Marine officer's boat, and he had had a canine on earlier that day. Mm-hmm. Or the boat that picked up the uh, that picked up the first suitcase uh they had a dog on the vessel or the the you know the the one that washed up on Fisherman's Island had a you know a dog walked by the suitcase um the boat the first boat they opened the suitcase if animal hairs were found in the body parts Maybe it came from a dog that was on the vessel. You know, let's, again, a lot of these, a lot of these innocence things, they start off with these very nonspecific, out-of-context claims. Mm-hmm. And they say, well, you know, they, they didn't answer this question. You're not asking a complete question. Um, and then finally, they have the, the whole dispute about McGuire's ability to physically commit the crimes. 
that she couldn't shoot Bill and move his body and cut his body up and get his body into the suitcases and move the suitcases and drive to Virginia because there wasn't enough time, even though she had days off of work and her kids were with her parents, right? Um, et cetera, to do the crime. Well, okay, first of all, she's a nurse. And one of the things nurses have to do in just about every discipline you have to move people bigger than you are and heavier than you are who can't necessarily move themselves or help you move them because they're unconscious or paralyzed or whatever. So I I have friends who are nurses, and you would be surprised. And they learn ways to do it. They learn ways to use a sheet. I mean, I had a little tiny, tiny LPN change my dad's bedding and he probably weighed more than 200 pounds and she wouldn't let me help her. And he couldn't move himself. He couldn't get out of the bed. He couldn't do anything. But she changed the bed and moved him around very quickly, very efficiently, and didn't disturb him. He didn't even wake up. Hmm. She used the sheets. And she, like I said, and she was smaller than I am. I mean, she was like maybe, she was a little Filipino girl, and she was like maybe five feet tall, and she was probably a size zero. You know, and I offered to help her. She's like, no, no, I got it. I got it. I'm not even supposed to have you help. Hospital says no. And, and years ago with my mom, we had a, you know, we had an LPN or a, 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 what is a certified nursing assistant. Oh, uh, uh, what do they call CNA. 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 Yeah. Who came in and, and you know and and did everything? Bathed my mom, changed her, changed the bed without a single effort from me to help her. And my mom was sound asleep and slept through it. Right. I mean, she didn't even stir. And neither neither my mom or dad were injured in that process. So, you know, nurses can be really, even registered nurses can be really, really, uh, you'd be surprised at what they can do. And body, you know, um, a a 200-pound man's body cut into three pieces and drained of blood is probably not going to weigh a whole lot. If those were, you know, Kenneth Cole, they were probably on rollers. Oh hell no! Especially, especially if it's cut up. Yeah, and you know the 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 suitcases were on rollers, so she could have rolled them out to the car, climb into she had a Nissan Pathfinder, climb into the back, pull the suitcases up. You know, and she doesn't have to worry about damaging the suitcase or damaging what's inside. I mean, it doesn't matter how rough and tough she is on it when she's doing it. Um, but yeah, to claim that she couldn't have done this, 
and that's why she's innocent is just there's no evidence that supports that. That's something that is never going to be proven. That requires somebody to just think, to go on faith. Oh, yeah, look at her. She's teeny tiny. She couldn't have done this. Let her out. Mm-hmm. And I promise you no judge is going to take that argument and run with it. All right. Uh, unless the judge is paid. <laughs> um, and then, you know, something that they didn't do, as far as I could tell, they, they didn't identify the, quote, real killer. They didn't provide evidence that of where Bill was killed. They didn't provide evidence that Bill was even alive after the April 28, 2004. Um, they didn't provide any evidence of lo- actual loans, actual loan sharks. Um, and usually when in a loan shark situation, of course, I haven't watched The Sopranos in a long time. But hmm. in a loan shark situation, my understanding usually was that you got a bit of a beat down. And that was your come to Jesus to start making your payments and making them on time. Only Mm -hmm. after you persisted in not paying the money that they wanted you to pay would your life be taken. And usually your life is taken, but you're pretty much, you know, the whole world. They want the whole world to know because they don't want other people fucking with them. So... As long right. as they don't end up in and prison. Usually they're not so usually they're not they're a little bit more professional about it from what I've heard. Yeah, they're a lot more professional than that. They're not gonna cut them up and put them in suitcases and disappear them from the face of the earth. Yeah. You know, the only reason the only reason to do that is to prevent the person being identified because you are going to be the prime target. You know, Melanie admits to calling easy pass to try and get the charges removed and to lying to get the charges removed. But she says, because I knew people would misunderstand it. It's like, bitch, you're saying I lied. How are we supposed to, were you lying then? Are you lying now? Right. How is anybody supposed to believe you? You know, it's like Rodney Reed. I lied. Yeah. Well, too bad. So sad. Sucks to be you. You shouldn't sure. have done that. So sure. yeah, that is that is it for Melanie McGuire. Um, like I said, I I I don't I I won't be listening to direct appeal. I don't find what you and I do is not investigation. Right. What you and I do is reporting the information that was gathered during the investigation that was revealed in court, that was became a matter of record in court, um, that was the basis of an appellate decision. We're not investigating. Right, absolutely not. You know, um, we're not – I can present – the defense's side and most of the time I can do it with a straight face. Mm-hmm. Um, Just most but of the time, 
I don't, I, I can present it. I can tell you what it was, but I don't, that doesn't mean I have to endorse it or believe it. Right. Um, and these podcasts like Serial and Direct Appeal, quote, investigating, you're not because you're not there when the body's found. You don't have any firsthand hands-on experience in the case. You're going back years later and talking to people. And I would suggest after seeing and hearing some of the interviews conducted on different, quote, investigatory podcasts, that you're actually tainting and suggesting information to your subjects when you're interviewing them. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, you're not asking an open-ended question. You're asking, well, you know, I was reading your interview with the police and, you know, when the officer said this, why didn't you say that? Right. Or, you know, well, you, you saw him, you just couldn't remember it at the time, right? You know? Right. And, and what, what witnesses even ones who testified say in an interview years later outside court doesn't really necessarily mean anything. Because it wasn't in court. Because it wasn't in court and it wasn't under oath. And unless they go into court and swear under oath that what they said the first time was a bald-faced lie, (laughs) you're not going to get anywhere. It's just like all that stuff with uh, Christopher Morgan in the Western Miss 3 case. He was never going to come in and test. He was never going to come in and say, I lied. Not Christopher Morgan, um, Michael Carson and Vicki right. Hutchison. You know, they even, I, I think they thought that she was going to go in and admit to lying at, tri- at Miss Kelly's trial. And when she realized she was going to get charged with perjury, <laughs> which Peter had every right to do, right? She wasn't gonna. She wasn't gonna do that under oath in court, right? So, um, and if they're not going to do it in court, it, it's just like Rodney Reed. These so-called relationship witnesses, if they don't testify under oath in court, subject cross-examination. They can appear on as many programs as you want, and what they say is never going to make it into court. Mm-hmm. You know, what they say is never going to have any impact on a conviction because it looks bad if you won't bring them into court and have them sworn in and have them testify subject to cross-examination. Right. You know. So, all right. Well, I think that's that's all we have for tonight. Um, do you have anything closing thoughts? I mean, another situation where just doesn't doesn't add up. The defense doesn't even won't come close to adding up. It's fucking insane. <laughs> yeah. So, again, as smart as she was, and she was very intelligent, 
Uh, don't get me wrong. But as smart as she was, I think she kind of outsmarted herself. Because yeah. it it was really, really, really smart to drive all the way down to Virginia. But unfortunately, you you drove down to Virginia where Bill had friends. Right, exactly. <laughs> Doesn't seem and so smart when you're when your plan when your plan for his body parts never ever ever to be seen again did not go as you wanted it to, then they were right there to say that looks like our friend Bill from New Jersey. Exactly. Which gets the cops right up on Melanie's tail. And then she lied and lied and lied and lied and lied to try and cover her tracks. And it didn't work. And that was the biggest mistake was, you know, I I think her trashing Bill the way she did as a means of trying to explain why she didn't report him missing. Um, She perjured herself in court proceedings. And that's always going to be the challenge. Her right because no matter what she does, if she tries to testify, she's got one big strike against her for credibility. True, because she's admitted to lying and she's been found guilty of lying, right? So, but yeah, she uh. She should have just walked away from the marriage. Uh, I think she wanted the assets that they had. Frankly, I think that she was like she everything she said about Bill, I think was a little bit of her too. True. And probably some of the worst characteristics that she projected onto Bill, I think, were more her than Bill. Mm-hmm. Because her claim that Bill was such a scammer, I really could not find anything independent of her that supported any of that. I mean, he was buried in the military cemetery in New Jersey, so he had an honorable discharge from the Navy. And you don't get those if you spend your whole time in the Navy scamming. Right. You know, I would agree. Um, and and I, I, I think as a, as a Navy man, you know, that was not his character. Everybody I've ever known in the Navy is, I mean, meticulously brutally honest with themselves and everybody around them. Yeah. And, you know, same, same with, you know, Army, Air Force, Marines, Coast Guard, um, for the most part. And, and, the, and those who aren't don't last very long. I would so. agree. All righty. Well, I think that is the end for tonight. Okay. Let's toss a bow on them. (laughs) 
Thank you for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and Michael Carnahan. If you like our show and want to know more, you can find us on Facebook. Go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com or follow me on Twitter at O'Brien LN. Michael and I are taking Christmas and New Year's off, and we want to wish our listeners a safe and happy holiday season. We'll be back on Tuesday, January 5th, 2021, at 8 o'clock p.m. Central for Episode 28, State of California versus Rodney Alcala. We'll talk about Alcala's sexual assault, some of which date back to the late 1960s, the murder that landed him on California's death row, and his multiple trials. Until then, have a great holiday and stay safe. Good night.